This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm very excited for the topic for this afternoon, which is looking at the issue very near and dear to my heart as somebody who's also somewhat recently tenured, is looking at the issues of what happens once you have tenure, because often this gets overlooked. And today we have three lovely ladies who will be joining me on the panel in a moment after I start us off setting the stage a bit. I wanted to use this opportunity with the microphone to tell you a little bit about our program at UCR. I'm one of the co-PIs on our advance grant, and uh, this really sort of sets the stage for this discussion. Our particular advance grant, Moving Forward for Women in STEM Fields at UCR and Beyond, we had to work a little hard to, to get the acronym to work with FORWARD, Faculty Organization for Women's Advancement, Recognition, and Development. And yes, we did choose this before the Obama campaign. We were forward before then, but I have to say it was nice timing, nonetheless. Uh, And we have three elements of our advance grant. The first is a quantitative study where we've been trying to do some data mining, looking at our recruitment and retention uh, of women in STEM, and also we've been looking at issues of women in color. And Yolanda really can speak a little more to those efforts. We've also been working on establishing program for women to foster success, leadership, and community building. We've actually been very fortunate that uh, our EVC and provost was willing to match some of the funding so that when we offered programs for women in STEM, we didn't leave out the women in non-STEM. So when I say we have these programs for women, it's actually for all women on our campus, which we're very pleased to have that community. Uh, And also we've been working hard to develop a, a network of women of color in the STEM fields because there's just not a critical mass. And so trying to have programming, bringing them together um, every few months to have some professional development and community building programming as well. Where I've been particularly involved is is this establishing programming on our campus. And there have been two ways in which I've been doing so. First, in trying to reinvigorate the Women's Faculty Association. It came up earlier today um, in Dr. Malcolm's talk that, you know, you can't rely on just a few people to do things. Things have to be institutionalized. And for many years, UCR relied on a couple really wonderful ladies who were running the Women's Faculty Association. But when they retired, uh, it ended. And I was lucky enough to participate in my first year here as a faculty member, and then it disappeared. And so as part of our um, grant, we've reinvigorated it, and we have a really wonderful series of luncheons and brown bags and activities that's going. And we are in the process through our grant of trying to find ways to institutionalize it and turn it into an actual organization association that will have life beyond our grant. Another major part of this is building a mentoring program, and we've been trying to not just mentor at the assistant level, which was discussed earlier, but also having mentoring at the associate level, because actually I was organizing it, and I wanted mentoring, so that's how we did it. Uh, So I basically was trying to partner up associate professors with full professors and assistant professors with associate professors. We had a variety of different events specifically targeted at these different stages, particularly a series of coffee breaks where we would invite the mentors and mentees. And at the handful of ones we had specifically aimed at women at the associate level, it was actually very disheartening because there was a reoccurring theme of dissatisfaction, disillusionment, and discouragement. My husband thought when I put this slide together it was too negative, but I'll be honest, there were tears. It was a very unhappy group of women. 
And, and so I think that this really brings to light the need to address women at these mid-career levels, that there's clearly some unhappiness and some issues we have to address. There's a wonderful study I read by Baldwin and Cheng, which discusses mid-career people, faculty, as the keystone to any great university. And you know, there's a quote here, but I think the element is that mid-career faculty fill essential instructional program development, administrative, and citizenship roles at their institution. And if the, those that are the keystone of our institution are so dissatisfied, there's something we need to address, something very serious there. They're the ones that hold us together in so many ways. Uh, this is an issue far beyond gender. Uh, in fact, the Chronicle of Higher Ed did a study in 2008 where they looked at what was, in this case, great colleges to work for. But the big issues of faculty that came up was, at the end, there was this sort of end of honeymoon. You became tenured. Whew. Now what? Well, and the reality is, now you really know what you've gotten yourself into, and now what? Right? So it becomes, you really, uh, your eyes are wide open. And typically the resources are aimed at the young faculty, young faculty trying to get tenure, and, and all of a sudden you're left um, assuming you've figured it out, um, and you're left to fend for yourselves. And I think as an institution, there's an attempt to make policies to address these issues, but there was a really wonderful study that, looked, that made a good point. Existence of policy is not necessarily the use of a policy. So we have some wonderful family-friendly policies in the UC system, but is there a culture of actually using them? In fact, uh, I mean, heck, I was the first woman in the College of Engineering here at UCR to ever have a baby, and so they didn't even know how to use maternity leave, right? So there wasn't even a culture of using maternity leave. And I just heard uh, last quarter there was a faculty mechanical engineer who took paternity leave, and ooh, that was a conversation. So... uh, The policy is there, but there isn't necessarily a culture of using these policies. So this is beyond beyond just a woman's issue here, too. But often there's this perception by the faculty themselves that they're being taken for granted and neglected. And in fact, there was a wonderful study, Baldwin et al., and the references are at the end, and we can share them with you if you're interested, that showed there's a systematic lack of attention, attention, an actual neglect of the needs of faculty at this level. And one of the main challenges, and many of you in this room can... Uh, empathize on this. You get to this point, you've worried about getting tenure for so long, so many of your sites have been tenure, right? And you get there, and your career begins to plateau, right? There's sort of uncertainty, you know, if you're in more of humanities, you know, you have that next book to start on. Um, But that's sort of a daunting process. Or if you're in STEM, okay, now that I've got this many papers out, now what's the next big area that I'm going to address to, to keep my publications going? And how do you set these professional goals when you're all of a sudden now being overburdened with additional responsibilities in your personal and your professional lives? And this hits women uh, disproportionately. There's an excellent study from our colleagues in the English field looking at uh, associate professors that really showed women are, and this is sort of an obvious statement, right? Women are bearing more of the burden in the family, child care, and so on, and in service at the university. These impact, this extra time impacts their careers. Maybe it seems small and incremental, but over the time it showed a one to 3.5 year longer period for advancement to full professor. That becomes quite substantial. Uh, And this study discussed micro versus macro inequities. So maybe these subtle differences in how we're being given service might be so subtle that it doesn't make you call up the ombudsman. (laughs) 
but over time, it's, you know, it's additive. And, and the sum not only may lead to putting you behind a bit in your own development, uh, but from the point of view of satisfaction in your job and your own advancement, it, it can take a toll. There were three uh, specific pulls on women faculty time that were identified in another study. The first is non-substantive service, typically women doing gendered service. So we all have the same teaching load, but who tends to bear the burden of the 600-person classes? Right? Typically is, is, is disproportionately women. Or doing more undergraduate mentoring or advising undergraduate organizations, those types of things. Also, we tend to do, and this affects all faculty, we're given work that we're not actually trained to do. Right? We're given committee work, or I'm now grad advisor, and nobody trained me to mentor graduate students and put together professional development programs and all that. And it's you know, this mandate and wonderful thing I'm willing to do, but at the same time, I don't necessarily have the staff support or the training to do it. So it's an additional burden on my time. And additionally, women faculty... Uh, more so than men, tend to get driven towards activities where they feel they're righting professional wrongs. They see that you need to step in. The student needs something. This other faculty member needs something, right? We step in to be mighty mouse. Here we come to save the day, right? Uh, But it takes a burden, right? It might be incremental, but it adds up. In looking at how we can address these issues and not just be negative. That was just trying to set the stage. Uh, I learned quite a bit about a wonderful advanced program that's been quite successful in North Dakota. And this was one where they addressed issues for both men and women. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's been so successful. So to share some things that they've done. First of all, they had a series of promotion mentoring workshops, panels, basically all the type of activities we're already talking about. Uh, And they had them with a frequency unheard of. You know, we have couples quarter, and they were having weekly activities with incredibly good attendance, so maybe we can find out from them how they incentivize that, right? And interestingly, when they surveyed their participants, 86% said now they understand the criteria for promotion better, and 87% said now I have new skills that are going to help me prepared to to go up for tenure. And that's a wonderful thing, because I know when we've had our conversations on our campus with our junior faculty about the merit and promotions process, it's one that that shows a lot of fear and uncertainty, even when you try to uh, distill concerns. This particular advanced program also looked at leadership opportunities. They did a survey early on in their grant and identified that a substantial number of faculty wanted to have formal leadership positions both men and women. However, the women, 51% of those who were interested, said that there are reasons, you know, barriers to doing leadership. So clearly there's interest, but, and, and I think on this campus and in your own, your own as well, I think women are interested in leadership, but how do you get involved and what are the sort of barriers uh, that are there and how can we bring those down? One of the ways this particular grant has been doing it is a series of leadership training and mentoring, leadership mentors, uh, and also to be a leader, you have to have a place to do it. And so one of the things they did was actually create things like assistant chairs, assistant deans, additional associate chairs, associate deans, creating more of a, a hierarchy, but to allow women particularly to find entry points into the leadership ladder. Because right now in the hierarchy we have, there are very few ways to get in, into leadership and to get that initial training that's so important and imperative before you can go through the, the uh, more senior ranks of leadership. And they found in those programs that they also 
we're meeting people's need. You know, basically 85% felt that these leadership programs met their needs and helped them prepare to be leaders in their um, university. Michigan State did an extensive study surveying 4,000 faculty and administrators, and there's a wonderful study that they called them promising practices, things that said, what should you do at different levels to address the needs of the faculty? And I want to encourage all of you to look at this study because they broke it down, what should the institution be doing, the department, chair, the tenure and promotion committee, and faculty themselves. Uh, although I would argue that the, what they came up with for department chair is far too broad. And one of the things that also concerns me is, especially in this place, where, you know, in the UC system where our chairs can turn over every three years, we put so much on the department chair, and we want to make sure these things continue. We either have to really improve the, ch- the chair's training or consider ways that we can implement these things beyond just the chairs uh, through chairs, mentors, maybe academic personnel, senate, and so on. But overall, the theme that came up from the study was you need to retool, refresh, and restructure. And this is what we can do to reach the needs of our mid-career faculty. They need to have the opportunity to be refreshed, to keep their skills up, and to learn the skills they need to be successful at these more senior levels as they go through the, the ranks um, and, and to, to work within the structure of the university. And I think those are... Those three are things to take home and think how we can do that on our own home campuses. The Chronicle of Higher Ed's study that I have referred to earlier came up with, with four suggestions on how we can address the needs of mid-career faculty. And in this case, they called it to recruit and retain talent because that's really a critical element. If you have unhappy mid-career faculty, they'll look elsewhere. First is formal mentoring programs, and I think that's something we've talked about quite effectively today. Although they were talking about mentoring even beyond just let's have a mentor to talk about various elements of my career, both professionally and personally, but also talked about shadowing programs, fellowship programs, course release. There was a lot of nitty-gritty details in this study worth looking at. They also talked about the need for awards. So we were talking about awarding mentors, but but mid-career people need awards too, you know, uh, there tends to be lifetime achievement awards or really great junior awards and early career awards, but there's not mid-career. Aren't you awesome somewhere 8 to 30 years in, right? You deserve to be awarded at some point in between. Um, also, ways work-life balance, programming, and also the importance of building a culture on your campus or through the institution. Because if you promote loyalty, if people feel that the university's taking care of them, they're a lot more likely to put up with little blips in the road, right? I'm just going to use this opportunity to just share a few of my own experiences because not only am I leading a panel on mid-career, but I, that I am mid-career, so I wanted to sort of share some of my own thoughts. When I was a junior faculty member, the previous vice, oh, see, I guess I got my acronym wrong, vice chancellor for academic personnel, uh, Betty Lord had these wonderful brown bag discussions for junior faculty to help advise us on what to do to get to tenure. Then it ends. Now, fortunately, the last one I went to before she um, left that position, she said to me, you know, Sharon, now we should talk about what you do next. And she gave me a few words of wisdom about what I should be thinking about. And frankly, that's, that's been the advice I've been going on now that I have tenure. There's no formal programming. Nobody's, you know, officially saying what you're supposed to do now to get full. And her main advice was don't get stuck at associate. Right? Not very detailed, but it, it's good advice. Uh, 
I've had some wonderful fa- women faculty association mentors that I, a couple I got when I first started as a faculty member and one I assigned myself last year uh, through our advance grant, and, and they've been very helpful for me. And particularly because in my department there was some mentoring, but the moment I got tenure, that was it. It wasn't formal mentoring, but basically it was as if I didn't need any help anymore. And in fact, instead I got new people to mentor. And it's been very difficult. You know, I love mentoring the new faculty, but there are times when I need help and sort of this assumption, you've got to figure it out, Sharon, you're on your own. And that, that can be very difficult. Uh, and so now I also have the added burden of not only mentoring some of the new faculty, which I enjoy, but there are only nine women in the College of Engineering. The two tenured or full professor women are uh, not really here. So I bear the burden of mentoring the six women that are or assistant professors. So uh, not having senior women really uh, is a burden for me as well. Uh, one thing that did happen for me just fortuitously is I decided to take a sabbatical. It was the best thing I ever did uh, just as I was starting my time at tenure. And that was incredibly important. And now I can see sort of from reading the literature, I retooled, I refreshed, right? And one of the things that this was really important that I did this because there's not a culture of taking sabbaticals, at least in my college. Or if they take them, you stay here. Why? Because, well, I get it. You want to supervise your lab. You have kids in school. But, in fact, there's a culture of sabbaticals. your time to really get caught up and just avoid committee work instead of going off and actually doing something new and, and doing this retooling process. Um, it's also been very difficult. I have two little children at home, a nine-month-old and a three-year-old, and when you're trying to balance it, it's been very isolating because we're already busy people, and now what time I used to integrate with my department and my colleagues is time I'm nursing or pumping or running home to pick up a child from preschool, right? And so it's very, very isolating. Um, and I guess the, the, the take-home message I'd love to sort of direct the discussion and your thoughts on is that we need to encourage different pathways. When you get to your mid-career, there's so many ways we can go, um, and there's not a single model. You know, I, I have some colleagues that are just research only, and services is this thing that they kind of just grin and bear. Um, there are others that want to go leadership, and some that really adore teaching, and teaching and mentoring becomes their, their passion, but they're not always, they're not, we, let's face it, they're not equally rewarded. And they're not equally rewarded in just informal conversations. They're not equally rewarded by CAP. Um, And so we need to encourage these models. We're all going to excel and be excellent in UC by doing a combination of things and and not just rewarding that research-only path because there's no way we can balance family and and really promote diversity without those different pathways truly being rewarded and celebrated. That said, um, I do have some references here, which I'll leave up while I do my next introduction for those who might be interested on the studies that I cited. Very fortunate to have a few different perspectives um, today on our panel. We're going to start out um, with Dr. Stacy, Angie Stacy, who is the Associate Vice Provost for, um, at uh, UC Berkeley and a chemist. And we're grateful to have her take on this issue as well. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Um, My role on this panel is to provide you with some of the data that we have, just a very quick snapshot of what the associate professor rank and actually the low um, full professor rank, uh, one through five, looks like. So I want to just briefly um, carry um, Frash, who's the director of faculty equity, who's here, and Mark Golden, who many of you know, who had to rush off to catch an earlier flight. 
um, we've put together a series of slides that address advancement, satisfaction, evaluation, mentoring, and then some workshops that we've run. Um, so what I want to start with is I'm going to show you a series very quickly of just six slides that look all look the same. So let me explain what the slide is here. Um, this is zero, all right, when you start as an assistant professor, and along the axis there is years out from assistant professor's start date. And this is the percent that achieves tenure as you move along. And this is close to something that you saw earlier. But the way this one is set up is the darker colors, the dark blue and the dark red, are for women in the STEM fields only. So that's the biological sciences, physical sciences. Um, I, I left the professional schools out, so public health would not be included in, in, these, in the STEM data. And then the lighter colors are non-STEM. And I think what you see is the men go up to tenure slightly earlier, and um, presumably because there's more confidence or they get their careers started a little bit um, quickly. But everybody seems to come to the, about the same level over time. <clears throat> this is the associate professor rank. And what I want to point out is that there is a slight lag for the women in STEM going up to associate. But the STEM fields go up very rapidly to associate. And so what you want to pay attention to when you're looking at these data, I'm, I'm sorry, to full, I'm sorry. So this one is going now to, up to full. So the, um, I'm so sorry, the, um, the, the STEM fields go up much more rapidly than the non-STEM fields. And the more book-based the discipline, it's much, much slower going up. And of course, there are more women in the book-based disciplines. So that when you look at these data, you need to be a little bit careful about the role of discipline. But nonetheless, there is a lag, some lag for women, as we've heard before. And then this is what it looks like um, going out um, from the time you're at full to um, step six. And everything seems to converge with some lag on the women in the STEM fields. Right? It's kind of interesting. So because women in the STEM fields, all the uh, men and women in the STEM fields go up so rapidly to full, the lag occurs a little bit later. So don't ignore... Um, the, the lower ranks of the full professor level. Um, and just to make it clear, I've, I've three more slides now that are identical, except now they're divided by the physical sciences and engineering, the biological and natural sciences, professional schools, social science, and humanities. And so you see there is some spread already going up from assistant to associate. I just want to point out that it does seem the, in the end result in the professional schools is lower than the other fields, at least at Berkeley, and the biologists are slow with the um, social sciences and hu humanists in the middle. But there's not that big of a gap because there's a time limit to the as assistant professor rank. But here's this huge spread on the associate professor rank. So um, there are a lot of faculty who remain associate professors in the non-STEM fields in particular for long periods of time. Hence, when you um, survey associate professors, you are going to get a diminution in their satisfaction because they haven't had a raise in many cases, even though they've been quite productive 
all right, for many, many years. And then it all converges again once you get up, um, once you're through that, once you've written that second book or made it to full professor, then people move along together. Anyway, I just wanted to give you some perspective on the advancement rates. And now, um, this, these are a couple of slides just quickly from our survey, our climate survey. Um, this one talks about percent satisfied with your current rank. And it didn't really matter what I asked, percent satisfied for anything. So these are, um, these are the results divided out by rank, all right? And so the blues are men, the reds are women. Women come in, both men and women come in very enthusiastic, very optimistic at Berkeley. Um, they go out and uh, when they're full step sticks, very happy, love their careers. But see what's happening in the middle. And this is real, and it shows up for whatever kinds of things you ask in terms of satisfaction, that there is a dip in the mid-career, right, which is what you were just alluding to. Um, now, I don't want to um, spend a lot of time on this, but this is just to get you thinking about whether the world of academia at, in the UC system has changed or not, okay? So this is a question where we said, um, these are the review criteria. Do you think they should be more important? In other words, do you think they're being undervalued in your merit and review case, okay? Um, well, everybody said things were undervalued, okay? It didn't matter where you looked. But what's really significant here is if you notice for books across the board, there's about 20 to 26% or so that are saying books are being undervalued. Journal articles peer-reviewed, very few people are saying they're being undervalued. Okay, so you see what's going on. But let me, show, let me explain what the colors are. The colors are where there are significant statistically significant differences in the responses. And the reds are um, saying these things are really undervalued. They need to be valued much more than they are. And the blues are where the numbers were much lower. And so there's a very um, striking difference between what the um, associate professors are saying and what the uh, faculty who are above scale are saying. So the faculty above scale are going, no, it's all fine. Everybody's evaluating me just fine. <laughs> and the um, associate professors are saying, I'm doing all this mentoring of undergraduate students. 65% said that's not being valued enough. Departmental service, promoting diversity, mentoring colleagues. It's not that the senior faculty are saying this shouldn't be valued more. It's just the striking difference. And so what we don't know is whether once you've been through it, been there, done that, um, these associate professors will feel the same, or whether this is really a, di a shift in the culture of the, of the university. Okay. So just something to think about in the mentoring programs, because remember, those are your mentors up there, okay? And it's not clear their values are aligned. Just something to think about. This is just very quick um, on, this is a question on what percent did not know about a particular merit review policy. And it's divided in colors where the bottom is assistant, associate, full, um, full above step six. And what you notice is that there's some striking um, numbers, 35% of the associate professors didn't know that they could say, wow, I have a really strong case here. Maybe we should consider more than one step. 
or they didn't know that at, on the Berkeley campus we do acknowledge one time um, a half a step for excellence in, I mean, extraordinary work actually in teaching service or diversity related work. So, um, so clearly there's information missing. And this is just to convince you that mentoring, everybody wants it. So these are the same numbers again. Look, the assistant professors go way out in terms of wanting more mentoring in um, navigating departmental policy, politics, help with publishing, help with grants, establishing professor context. But it doesn't dip down very rapidly. It dips down over time because people think they know what they're doing at some point. But the associate professors really are asking for this, all right? And this is just another same thing, um, coaching on the review process, advice on research, mentoring on teaching. I just want to give you a sense that it really does matter, that even full professors are asking for more conversation. Now, I want to end with um, something that we've been doing at Berkeley. Um, we've been meeting once a semester with our associate professors, and we've run about four of these workshops, and we continue to run them. They're well attended. You would be very pleased with the demographics in the rooms, mostly women and faculty of color. It's kind of interesting. But we get great attendance, and we have wonderful conversations. And here are the three main themes that we've pulled out of, of, what, we're, of what we're looking at of what they're telling us. They're seeking information about the process. It's different from getting tenure. People were telling them what to do. You gotta do this and then this and then this. Uh, so for advancement to full, that's not the case. So they are seeking information. They're really trying to understand, oh my gosh, I have a whole career above me. I just got an A plus and there's no grades left. So what do I do now? Um, and they are, they, they're seeing all kinds of wonderful opportunities and not sure which ones to take and which ones not to take. So it's very rich discussions on what the opportunities and possibilities are. And as one associate professor said, I got tenure and then the dump truck came. It backed up. <laughs> it backed up and it poured all of this, not such nice stuff, all over me. Um, and... <laughs> and um, and the issue with that was really one of just being a little bit nervous about, oh my gosh, if I say no, does that mean that I'll never get to be a full professor? So they were really looking for, what can I say no to? What can I say no to? And we have this great conversation that, you know what, if you say yes to everything, you run out of time. So you're saying no to probably the most important people around you, your students, your family. So learning how to say no was a big issue for this group. At any rate, I think this is just the start on understanding what this population of faculty really need. And I want to say, if you haven't done it, you should sit in a room with these faculty because you will feel that the UC system is in great hands. Um, these are fabulous, engaged, enthusiastic faculty. Um, and I didn't mean to leave on a downer, but um, there are no, I don't have, uh, you might have noticed that underrepresented minorities aren't in there because you might think about the numbers. And if you haven't looked on your campus at how many women of color you have in your STEM fields, do it. Okay? Do it. Um, I'm not going to be the only one to share the number on the Berkeley campus. <laughs> it's really sad, okay? 
So just that's why I focused on women and men and not on 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 women of color. Okay? So thanks. Thank you. All right, we're, we're going to continue with Dr. Linda Walling, who's a professor of genetics here at UC Riverside. And she also served as the associate dean for our College of Natural and Ag Sciences for six and a half years. And so in that context, ran a, a wonderful program that I got to participate in as an assistant professor that was very helpful for me. So she was a natural to include in this discussion. So Linda? Well, I want to say thank you for the uh, invitation, and um, I'm not going to provide a lot of statistics. What I'm going to do is provide some of my um, uh, some of my opinions, I guess, um, from my experiences here at UCR. And I, I think the my theme is that um, our mid-career faculty are continuing to climb our ladders, and there are challenges, and hopefully um, there are some solutions. And um, and so uh, you know, you're an assistant professor. It's great, you know, celebrations. And what happens is you still have many other ranks to still climb to. And what happens is you know from from a, a from associate professor to full professor to professor six to a professor above scale. And what we find is not everybody makes it to these higher levels. And how do we really promote success at all of these levels? And and that's what I would like to try to provide some ideas on. And so we balance. We balance lots of things. And and we balance life and family. And that has to be balanced with our our scholarship, our leadership, and, and our teaching. And as you see, just the words on the blue side kind of tilt these balances, and we really have to work to keep everything really uh, balanced, uh, um, because, you know, there's also something called fun, you know, (laughs) and, you know, sometimes it's not in our vocabulary, and it needs to be put into this, uh, this rubric. Okay, and so what I want to do is kind of talk about my ideas is to cultivate, um, I guess, from a botany plant sciences department seems like an appropriate word for me to use. And I'm drawing from my experiences as divisional dean for six and a half years in the life sciences. Um, I'm currently on the committee for academic personnel. So over the years, I've seen a lot of files. And I see um, a lot of strengths. And I've also seen some of the places where where faculty get hung up. I'm a professor uh, of genetics and uh, a co-founder of a mentoring program called Salsa, and I'll tell you a little bit about that a little bit later. And so um, my own opinion (laughs) is you need excellent department leadership, okay? And so, so, you know, so... And so I chose this for a lot of reasons. Um, we have my department chair there, uh, and um, but we all look the same. Um, but we do need a leader, okay? And we really need uh, we need leaders, especially at these times of transition, where faculty's uh, jobs and our roles on, on the campus are changing, and we're we're balancing. It's, there's a real need for a balanced academic file, and sometimes assistant professors or even through the time as you are an associate professor, there, there's, a, there's a need to repair some things, and one needs, may need to enhance some things. And this is the time where a department chair can't be silent. 
uh, can't be silent. Silence isn't golden. Chairs have to be really explicit. But this is also the time for really exceptional achievements. In some fields, it's the second book. In uh, other fields, it's these creative activities that are going to now be produced in very prominent venues. And for many of us in the sciences, it's, it's the step up in trajectory in terms of the quality and the quality of peer-reviewed manuscripts and reviews. And the chair needs to be there to provide guidance. And what I have seen occasionally is that the chair isn't always as actively involved or perhaps providing that proactive guidance that faculty need. And so, um, and so I really feel chairs really need to lead the way. Um, also, for a lot of us in the STEM fields, it's the time for grant renewals, and this is a terrible time for funding. And that um, I think chairs ought to be really involved in making sure grants are getting peer-reviewed prior to leaving the campus. And that deans need to get in there and be talking to our chairs and, and to point out the problems and to begin to seek uh, improvements really proactively. And um, I know these are the kinds of policies we had while I was in the dean's office. But I think more than anything else, chairs of departments need to create a vision for the future. And that, you know, our mid-career faculty are our key. They set, um, the chair needs to set the tone for the future, needs to create a culture of innovation and change. And in by doing this and making sure our, our mid-career faculty are the focus, you know, we're going to cultivate the, the leaders of our future and people are going to feel engaged and, and productive. And so one of the things in, in reading a little bit for this, I came across a quotation, and it said, women faculty are disproportionately burdened with administrative responsibilities. Uh, they have, uh, and the recommendations of this particular article said that um, we needed to reduce um, excessive administrative burdens or to change our reward structure. And, and I agree with both of those. But I also think uh, what we really need to do is to abolish the word service and cultivate leadership. And so faculty perspectives on service and administrative leadership are awful. I mean, when I went to the dean's office, it was like my colleagues didn't know who I was. And so I take this picture here. It's like, yeah, I like the color black, and yeah, I, I, I wear red suspenders, and yeah, that's my coffee cup I've had for the last 15 years. But my faculty don't recognize me anymore. All of a sudden, I've turned to the dark side. And I think one of the things we need to change is that 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 idea that administrative service is actually a good thing. Administrative service should be something that we actually all are involved in. And so what I'd like to propose um, is to cultivate leadership, replace that word service in our academic personnel uh, um, uh, when we are evaluated for uh, advancement and promotion and replace it with leadership. And that I think all faculty need to be leaders. And I know from reviewing dozens and dozens of files, not all faculty are leaders. They, they may be leaders in their field in scholarship, but they're not necessarily leaders on our campus. And um, I think that what we ought to be doing is have every faculty member really have a self-developed leadership pathway that's assessed routinely. 
and that, um, that we should have really clear leadership paths and that campuses ought to look at what do we do, what do we ask our faculty to do at the university level, senate, college, department, even the research office asks for faculty to have service. And some of us are really good. We enjoy mentoring. That's a lot of us here in, in this room. But some faculty aren't so good at that, and they shouldn't be taking that pathway. They need to be providing excellent service um, in other ways. And so what I would really love to promote is this idea of a hierarchy of uh, committee work that allows for the training to allow a building of a knowledge base. Because while I was in the dean's office and I would say, can you help me? Can you serve on this committee? I would, well, I don't have the background to do that. I don't know what I don't. I, that's too much work, and so my my real feeling is that if there's a hierarchy of leadership, that you build this knowledge base, and then you evolve into these really natural leaders. And I know, as as I was an assistant professor, an associate professor, I my 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 administrative my service skipped around to many different things, and I don't think that was necessarily a good thing for my career. But I think I would have far benefited from a, a real tailored leadership path. And so, um, and so, even in getting faculty to do leadership activities, uh, one of my when I was uh, in the CNAS, um, one of my chairs said, "Well, you know what." There aren't enough carrots, and the sticks aren't big enough. And, and, and I think he was right. And that's why I think leadership paths are really kind of the, the, the solution. And I, I think we really need to look outside of our university framework for developing some of these ideas, and, um, and because I, they've been developed in, in industry. And so, um, again, to cultivate leadership, it means cultivating a new crop of leaders. It means faculty need to be trained on, on how to lead. And, um, and they will lead our centers, our institutes, our departments and colleges. Um, also, I think this leadership training, the involvement at the department, college, and university level really provide faculty ownership for the future. And what I think happens often in, in mid-career is, is you don't feel engaged. You feel like you're being split in many different uh, directions, and you, you don't feel that engagement and appreciation. I think also the advantage of leadership paths is the fact that there's a more equivalent distribution of our non-academic workload. And I, I know for sure of some of the people who sit in this room, I know they are handling a disproportionate amount of leadership for our campus. The other thing that leadership paths do is they provide trust, respect, and diplomacy, and they provide faculty from across disciplines and across the campus to really form a, you know, a, a, a network across the campus that's supportive. And then finally, there's a deep knowledge of our campus infrastructure, and committees are then, therefore, less work. And I really feel that by the three starred areas, this is where we would really impact both women, uh, faculty uh, of color, and I, actually, I think all faculty on campus would benefit. Oh, and so why do I have a warthog <laughs> there? Well, uh, I met this warthog while I was in Tanzania recently. <laughs> but I think she represents um, the kind of collaboration we need. Uh, she, has, she has this really wonderful uh, interaction with this ox pecker. They have this very diverse needs, and yet they function together quite beautifully. And, um, and that's the kind of thing with leadership, that's the kind of integration we need. And so... Again, 
by releasing a little bit of uh, leadership, um, a little bit of time by distributing our work evenly across our faculty. Um, there, there's time for the things we care about, and especially for mid-career faculty. Some, uh, some, some men and women are just having children for the first time. Others are growing their, their family. I really believe an automatic stop the clock. I mean, I think stop the clock should be automatic, not something that faculty opt in or out have to opt into. I just think it should be automatic. And um, it's distressing when you see a file and that hasn't been taken advantage of. Um, and I think the chairs ought to be having really proactive discussions in terms of life-career balance. And some chairs I know do this really, really well. And it's very, very apparent from other files um, that it's not so it's not happening in other cases. But also, we need more time for the things we care about, the life part, our partners, our friends, our parents, and most importantly, ourselves. Oh, oh yeah, and fun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so mentoring. We've talked about mentoring. I really don't need to say very much about it, but I know the strongest mentoring programs here at UCR are, are women-based. And I have a number of colleagues, uh, women faculty, who don't want to participate in these programs, primarily because it's, it's, um, it's, it's not inclusive. It's not including our male faculty. And our male faculty needs mentors, too. And so I think what we really do need is to improve this culture of uh, mentorship just about in everything we do. Okay. And so finally, what I, I would like to just say something about is uh, a set of workshops that I was co-founder of, um, and we called it Salsa, and I, and I guess I didn't give you what the name was. It's, it's called Success and Leadership Skills for the Academe, and it was developed primarily um, by, uh, by me and uh, uh, Vice Chancellor Louie. And uh, he was vice chancellor for research, and since then he's left our campus. And we've uh, we've developed six workshops that have been delivered over a period, I guess it was of about four years. And um, there were six uh, workshops that we had. One was called uh, Ten Habits of Highly Successful Faculty." Uh, Yolanda Moses and I uh, used to uh, deliver that. I used to deliver something called "Mentoring and Being Mentored." Uh, we had something on intellectual property, scientific ethics. Uh, we had external people come in for a two-day uh, grant writing workshop. And then I developed another uh, workshop on uh, letters of reference and the law, Think Before You Write. And I used to do this with legal counsel. And so it, they were really beneficial. We had this for about five years of assistant professors and postdoctoral fellows. And um, I ran this primarily while I was a divisional dean. And since rejoining the faculty, I've been a little overwhelmed with the transition back. And um, it, it stopped. And so this says something for uh, having uh, more than just one or a small number of people involved with this. So I now have, thanks to the research office, all of the junior faculty who actually participated in this uh, program, I've been approached by many of them to reinitiate it because they thought it was really helpful in their careers. And so I'm hoping to get some of the salsa trainees involved in salsa for the future.
Okay, oh, and I did it also. Not only did it add spice, but it allowed me and others to kind of pursue and do the things that you didn't think you really could do. I, I don't know how to salsa dance yet, but anyway. And then finally, I think there's another principle. I call it the UM principle, the unrelenting mentoring. And I think there need to be workshops that continue um, beyond the, the assistant professor me, uh, level. I think time management is a problem we all have, no matter what level we're at. I think, um, as, you, as you've heard, I really believe in the idea of leadership paths and, and training. Uh, I think faculty, especially at the associate level, need exposure in how to speak to the public and, and to donors. Uh, I think uh, we used to have a very, very active program for search committees and guidance, and I think that needs to be reinstituted. Um, and I think some faculty, perhaps like myself, during my early, uh, actually for 20 years of my life, I had a very significant commute to balance my personal life with my, um, my, my career. And uh, actually today, maybe learning how to run a Skype meeting from a distance so faculty from a distance can actively participate in running the university may be a really good thing that we need to think about. I think further department chair training is really essential. Um, I think there aren't many programs for teaching pedagogies to faculty here on our campus, but I know at a number of the other uh, UCs, they're very, very active programs. But we do have really excellent examples for uh, teaching excellence, and I know they do mentor a lot of faculty who, who need a little bit of help. And then finally, I think maybe we should have something called How to Make Beer and Influence Leaders. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, with that, um, I will will stop. So, so we're just going to continue our discussion uh, on mid-career with Dr. Sanghee Lee. Sanghee is a associate professor in the Department of Anthropology and also the chair of that department. So this is one of the really rare occasions that I'm not speaking with a PowerPoint. Um, Presentation. Sharon assured me that not everybody will bring a PowerPoint slide. Oh, so, and I'm so sorry I missed the morning um, um, session. I was at the chair's meeting talking about budget for two hours. So, thank you very much. This has been a very educational um, event. I really wanted to title my talk, um, I Don't Belong Here, but now I um, have a sense that that is perhaps part of the problem that we are uh, thinking about today. So what I wanted to do was um, scratched out a talk while I was thinking about what I wanted to say, and I wanted to make uh, have sort of three subheadings. One, realization, I have a problem. So I was um, tenured in 2007. I start out with my uh, personal life, if that's okay. Um, and then after tenure, I got married and had a child. Um, and then my mother passed away, and then my father passed away. So it felt like I recently got tenured, but six years passed by, and I realized that after I sort of came out of the whole life overwhelming set of events, that my research has come to a full stop, 
and I it, there was no, I lost momentum on what I was going and where I was doing and things that used to excite me so much as an assistant professor I never felt the need to need mentoring because I was fine I you know I had a goal and now I was in a place where I should know what I was doing and shouldn't need any mentoring so I didn't seek mentoring because I'm supposed to know what I'm doing right so and I'm supposed to give mentoring to the other junior faculty members. Um, and there's also a sense of shame and embarrassment that I'm in this position that I brought myself because, I mean, I chose to have a family, right? It's not, it was not inflicted on me like some sort of disability. So um, at, at five, six years passed, and then I re- suddenly realized it's sort of a, out of, Pit, of, pit bottom, that I have nothing to lose. So I started to um, ask other senior women, what did they do? And I have all these wonderful colleagues from my department here, but I have to say I didn't go to them first because, you know, I, have, I didn't want to... I kind of made me feel more vulnerable that I would go to our my own department senior faculty member. So I went across the campus to um, them seen as people. And then when I sought out a couple of uh, uh, senior f- women, I, I remember saying this first time I said, I, we sat down for a cup of coffee and I sat down and I just blurted out, I'm the rut. And then I just started to cry. And uh, she, I don't know, I'm so sorry. I don't know what she said. But then, from then on, it was very easy to go to the next senior woman and and say this, lay it out, because what I then realized is number two, epiphany. It's not that I have a problem. It's that we have a problem. A lot of the people that I've talked to Say, so, oh, yeah, it happens. Yeah, it happens. Social professor sucks. It, in the main time, big time, sucky period that you're going through. So that really helped. And then uh, more, as I think and thought uh, more about this problem, I realized that academia is, didn't start out for people like me. It was not meant for mothers, for a person from Korea, um, for uh, for people, and it was really for people with means, whether it is uh, resources, money, or uh, uh, wives. So that brings me to the third point. Number three is going to be a short talk. Is bootstrap. It's very interesting that one of my um, research methods that I employ in most of my research is bootstrapping because I oh I deal with human fossil materials. We all it's always have this uh, big challenge of small sample size. So bootstrapping is used quite often in my uh, field, and I was one of the first generation who employed that uh, approach in the field of paleoanthropology. Uh, Human, human paleontology. I'm now a chair of my department. I need to get promoted. I would like to get promoted myself. 
And I look at my department. We have four associate professors, three of them women, two of them with young children, one woman, one man, um, and three of us are women of color. So it is very important for me to bootstrap myself, but also to provide a good guidance. I, um, Linda's? Walling's <laughs> um, beautiful slide with beautiful sheep leaders um, to to start and have um, all of us thrive and be successful. Um, what, I was thinking, what would help me at this point? It definitely helped me to have the sense that yes, I am alone, but I'm alone together with other alone. People who are going through <laughs> the same process. Um, I think mentoring, of course, very important, but it's also very difficult to have a, 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 a effective mentoring relationship. I think for me, what would definitely help is to have more narratives of, of different pathways of how career trajectories take place. And to see, oh, and to have some variable identification points of, oh, that person went through this similar challenge in her or his life, and and this is how it got to be. They got to be where they are. Um, associate professor workshops, um, Sharon mentioned earlier. That's something that I would really like to see as our campus start or resume, whatever the correct verb is. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.